Calvin said, nothing could be more inconsistent with the nature of faith than the deadness of which would lead a man to disregard his brethren and to keep the light of knowledge choked up within his own breast. Another way to say this is, if you believe that Jesus is Savior and King, you won't keep that life-changing good news to yourself. Matthew was a tax collector, a friend of Rome, a traitor to his Jewish brethren. Jesus comes along, sees Matthew in his tax booth and says, get up. Matthew gets up and follows Jesus and his life is never the same. And he is the author of the gospel of Matthew. Gospel literally means good news. To evangelize, that's the the Greek term, evangelion. It's good news. It's to bring good news. His gospel, of which we've been in the past three weeks, is for everyone. But his target audience is his brethren, his fellow Jews. He wants to share with them what has changed his life. He wants them to realize the the truth about Jesus. He is their long-awaited Messiah. To prove this, Matthew looks at a number of Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfills. Matthew quotes over 60 prophetic passages in the Old Testament in his gospel. We see five times this happened in the first two chapters of Matthew alone. Something happens and we're told this is to fulfill what the Lord has spoken through the prophet or some variation of that phrase. In chapter one, we saw Jesus is born of a virgin, fulfilling Isaiah 7, 14. In chapter two, we're told that Jesus was born in Bethlehem which is a reference to Micah 5.2. We're going to look at three more fulfillments today in a passage that if you read alone in isolation, you would probably go, what in the world is Matthew doing here? This is one of those passages you read, you say to yourself, I quite don't understand what's happening here, so I'm just going to kind of keep the train of moving into, into chapter 3 where it makes a little bit more sense. But if we listen to Matthew close enough, we're going to get a fresh perspective on the Christmas story and even more reason to be in awe of God this season. Turn to Matthew 2. We have Bibles in the back for you back there. Again, have God's word in front of you, whether it's physical copy, digital copy. Uh, That's how God reveals himself to us most clearly is through his word. And so grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, look up an app or just, you know, type in Matthew 2 and a bunch of translations will pop up. We use the ESV. Uh, Nothing special about it. It's just the one we use. Uh, Read along with us. So Matthew 2, look at verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I call my son. 
So what's happening is post Jesus's birth. We saw Herod breathe fire last week, desiring to, to kill this newborn king that threatened his throne. We talked about that last week. And now we have God guiding Joseph to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod, to be prepared to be protected. Now, from a human perspective, this all seems crazy. Hey, congratulations. Uh, the savior of the world has been born. Uh, now run as, as fast as you can. A king wants to destroy your family, Joseph. A family's being uprooted and told to go to a foreign land. But from the heavenly perspective, just a little, little, little side note, God is in control, guiding and sovereign. I want you to listen to me. Even while things look crazy down here, and for a lot of you, this season is very crazy. God's hand is not off the wheel. He's still sovereign. He still guides. He's still in control. And he guides Joseph and his family to Egypt. Egypt was a natural safe haven for Jews with a large Jewish community. So Joseph urgently and obediently follows the Lord's instruction and heads there. Look at verse uh, 14 and 15 again. Until, and he rose and he took the child, his mother, by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now listen to this. This was to fulfill. So if you want to underline anything in your own Bible, not my Bible, but in your Bible, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I call my son. Again, what is what's Matthew doing here? This is talking about Jesus going to Egypt. So this, then he's talking about coming out of Egypt. This is a quotation from Hosea. In context, Hosea is recounting God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. And so whatever fulfillment being spoken of is here connects the Exodus event with Jesus coming out of Egypt eventually. And we all know the Exodus story from Sunday school. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. Yeah. A very upbeat song for what happens next. Ten plagues. We got blood and frogs and bugs and, you know, firstborns dying. And then, and then finally, God frees the Israelites from Egyptian bondage through parting the Red Sea. So how does Jesus eventually coming out of Egypt fulfill what happened to Israel over a thousand years before Jesus was born. Well, Jesus's fulfillment here, and I'm going to get a little technical and a little, little, you know, seminary kind of guys love to use this kind of language. Uh, I like it so much. It makes me feel smart. Uh, how does, so Jesus's fulfillment here isn't predictive. Like my, Micah 5.2, where Micah literally says a ruler will come out of Bethlehem. And then guess what? Jesus comes from Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem. This fulfillment here is typological. Everybody say typological. I told you. You're like, what again? A type, in its simplest way to explain it, is a person or thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows a person or thing in the New Testament. So it's a shadow of what is to come. 
It's a slight picture of a, a greater picture that will happen ultimately in Jesus Christ. So the Exodus, follow me here. The Exodus in the Old Testament is a potent symbol foreshadowing the greater work of deliverance and salvation that God will accomplish in the New Testament. Just as God brought his son, Israel, God's people out of Egypt, God will ultimately bring his true son, the son of God, out of Egypt. And just as God delivered and saved his son, Israel, all of God's people out of Egypt, from their enemies in the Old Testament, Jesus came out of Egypt to ultimately save and deliver his people from slavery. But this time it's from slavery of sin and death. Matthew is helping us see that Jesus inaugurates the new exodus. The reason Jesus came is to free us from sin and death. Death being separation from God. Death being in a state of needing forgiveness. Jesus came to save us from sin and its penalty Death. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then what was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. So the Magi, being warned in a dream, do not go back to Herod as Herod requested. Hey, tell me where this, this newborn king is being born so I can praise him. They hear from a dream, do not go back to Herod. So they, they take a different route back home. Herod literally goes nuclear on Bethlehem. And any child under two years old is put to death. Now, we don't see this in, in history books. We don't see this written in antiquity. There's no extra biblical evidence that this took place. Well, this was probably around 20 to 40 male children. You know, 30 maybe, 40. That doesn't make it any less an atrocity. Given the size of Bethlehem and its insignificance at the time, it was probably just another atrocity in the long line of atrocities that Herod committed. So it's just not really worth noting. But go to 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Again, what the heck is Matthew doing here? This quote is from Jeremiah 31, 15. Jeremiah talks of Rachel. Rachel was the wife of, of Jacob, one of the patriarchs, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. Over time, she became a designated symbolic mother of, of Jerusalem. And so in Jeremiah's time, as he's writing, the Jewish people were conquered by Babylon and exiled. They were taken from their homeland, the promised land, 
because they had sinned and turned from God under the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. God said, if you do not do what I prescribe, if you disobey me, I will scatter you among the nations. I will disperse you among the nations. The exiles were brought along after they were conquered on the road where Ramah lay. Ramah is where Rachel was buried. And so this is what you're to envision as you're hearing all of this history being brought together. He envisions in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, the mother of Israel, as if alive in her tomb, weeping for her children as they walked into captivity and oblivion. Just imagine as a mother, your child being ripped from your hands and believing that you would never see them again. If you can imagine that, you can imagine what it was like to be a mother during the exile. People being gathered, put into caravans, and spread across the the land. You also get a taste of what it would have been like to be one of Bethlehem's mothers, to have a soldier, a stranger, walk into your house, take your child, and kill it. You would know the pain of Rachel. You would know the pain of Bethlehem's mothers. And again, we see striking parallels in the patterns of God's history. First and foremost, darkness hates light. Darkness will always hate light. Furthermore, in Jeremiah, a foreign power attempts to wipe out God's chosen, and Rachel weeps. Here, Herod attempts to eliminate God's true chosen one. Again, mothers weep. Yet there's a deeper significance here than just the association of anguish. Jeremiah 31.15, believe it or not, in the midst of exile, is a passage of hope. It's a passage all about hope. It's surrounded by hope. A chapter before, God says, I will break the yoke off my people's neck. You will no longer serve foreign nations. You will serve the Lord who will raise up for you a new king. Gonna write something down right. New king right there. The very verse after Jeremiah 30, 31, 15, where it talks about Rachel weeping. He says, keep your voice from weeping and your tears from your eyes. There's hope for your future. Exile will not be the end for your children. You know why? He says some verses later, I'm going to establish a new covenant. I'm going to unite my people and I will write my law on their hearts. It will be a covenant of forgiveness and restoration so that all God's people will know, love, serve, and worship him. So we have this weeping in the midst of exile, but then we have talk of a king, the end of exile, a new covenant. I believe Matthew is is saying with the birth of Jesus, the promised hope given by Jeremiah has been actualized. 
The trail of tears from, from exile to Bethlehem is ending. The king spoken of in Jeremiah has finally come to bring an end to Israel and humanity's exile from God's favor and blessing. This king will inaugurate a new covenant through the shedding of his blood on the cross, which pays for our sins. His spirit will live in us, helping us to know, love, and worship God forever. There is hope. Let your tears dry up and cry no more because King Jesus has come to establish a new covenant. Look at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and come back to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in a place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So God continues to guide Joseph's family through dreams. Come home, Herod. And everybody who sought to kill the Christ child, they're gone. And Joseph, probably wanting to come back to Judea where Bethlehem was, introduced a new threat. Judea is now ruled by Herod's oldest son, who, like his father, loves a good massacre. And so, again, he hears word of this. Another dream guides them to Galilee, ruled by a less threatening son of Herod. And they find a small one-bedroom, no bathroom in Nazareth, a town of about 500, and they make it their home. Look at verse 23 again. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the uh, strangest of the fulfillment quotations. First, he uses the plural prophets. He doesn't say the prophet, but he says prophets, indicating that he might be uh, not, not talking about a specific text, but summarizing a broader scriptural theme, which makes sense because nowhere in the Old Testament does it say Jesus will be born in Nazareth or Jesus will be a Nazarene, someone from Nazareth. So why does Matthew say this? Well, a constant theme throughout Scripture is the rejection of the prophets. The prophets of old were despised, rejected, looked down on. It was even foretold by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah, the paramount prophet, will be despised and rejected by men. So the rejection of of prophets is something we see all throughout God's word. Now, Nazareth, the place where Jesus grows up, would have been seen as outsiders, as a small, backwards town. Can you think of any towns like that in Colorado? Man, you're from there? Anybody want to say it out loud on the record? (laughs) 
I, I, I lived in Topeka, Kansas for 10 years, and whenever I told somebody I was from Topeka, Kansas, they would answer, and they would they just go, why? Like, why would, why would anybody live in Topeka, Kansas? Nazarene was a slang term for an individual from a very remote or obscure place, much like redneck or, or hick. In John's gospel, Nathaniel literally says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Topeka? Yes, my son, he was born there. <laughs> he came out. You are out of Topeka, Asher. <laughs> Nazarenes were despised and rejected. Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53 in the experience of the prophets because he too will be despised and rejected by men to the point of death for our sake so that we might be saved. Jesus is the despised prophet. It's easy, as I said before, to read a passage like this, even at Christmas time, get confused and, and move on. Because it seems like Matthew is taking a bunch of Old Testament passages and trying to squeeze them into the life of Jesus in a way that's hard to connect, like the father or the dad whose waistline has grown throughout the year, but his wife buys him a pair of jeans that would have fit last year, and putting them on, he squeezes it, the button's struggling, and he says, I look great, don't I? <laughs> we can see from our study today, Matthew writes with the purpose and depth of meeting. Matthew is putting together a double-sided puzzle. On the top, you have these seemingly random pieces of Israel's history that fit together. You have the exodus out of Egypt. You have exile and the hope of a new covenant, the rejection of the prophets. But when you look at the puzzle underneath, beneath the glass, you see the face of Jesus, Savior, Messiah, King. Matthew is not proof texting passages that Jesus might somehow fulfill. He's, be he's beckoning his Jewish brothers and sisters to see that the story of Israel, their story, their history, all points to Jesus Christ. And what a glorious portrait of Jesus Matthew paints in the first two chapters of the gospel. Our awe this season, our reverence, our awe this season is directly correlated to how awesome we believe God is. If Jesus is just a guy <laughs> who comes and he loves hugs, I love hugs. If he comes and he's just a guy and he, he tells us what it looks like to have good manners, how to treat each other kindly, what's, what's all the hubbub? Why string up all these lights? Why spend all this time? Why light up these trees? Why even gather here on a Sunday morning? <laughs> Our awe this season is directly correlated to how awesome we believe God is. And, and the picture painted of, of Jesus in chapter one and two of Matthew is awesome. We are told Jesus is Abraham's seed the blessing 
to all nations. He is from the line of David who will rule on an eternal throne. His kingdom is for all people. He is God with us, fully God and fully man. He came to save people from their sins. That's chapter one. And chapter two, we're told he is the king of kings, the ruler from Bethlehem who will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, who will bring peace. He inaugurates a new exodus right, by redeeming his people from the slavery of sin and death. He will end the mournful exile and establish a new covenant with his people. He will be despised like the prophets of old to the point of death so that we might know the Father. Born is the king. Sit in awe and worship him. Amen? Let's pray.